Welcome to the Stonebridge Community Church Essentials Podcast with your host, Senior Pastor John Sauer. This week, Pastor John will walk us through part three of the essential doctrine of the Trinity. Thanks for joining us today. When you want to talk about the Trinity, you use the Nicene Creed to guide your language. It's the creed that we introduced last week here at Stonebridge Essentials. And it's the creed that for hundreds and hundreds of years, it has helped us know how to talk about the Trinity. But I think before we actually get to the Nicene Creed and its substance and its positive affirmations, it's important that we take a look at the heresies that gave rise to the Nicene Creed and the heresies that have happened since the Nicene Creed. So this week in Stonebridge Essentials, as we look at the Trinity, we're going to set the Nicene Creed aside and we're going to take a look at the heresies right now. I'm Pastor John, and welcome to Stonebridge Essentials, our look this summer at the Trinity and this foundational doctrine for Christianity and Christian faith. As we look to the heresies, I want to just give us some ground rules here on what what it is we're talking about. When I say heresy, what I mean is a belief that is contrary to Orthodox Christian doctrine. Once again, definition of heresy, a belief that is contrary to Orthodox Christian doctrine. That's what a heresy is. And people have killed and they've died over claims of heresy. People have been exiled. Heresies have been a huge problem without the church, but not just heresies, but the way the church responds to heresies. So before we go and start labeling anyone a heretic, before we go and take the fact that there's heresy out there as an excuse to use power to silence people, which is what the church has done, I have to make a couple things really clear. When I am using heresy and talking about heresy, I am not talking about salvation. Thank God that salvation does not depend on our accurate beliefs about God. And thank God that our words that we use to express those beliefs are not the basis for our salvation. In the Reformed tradition, salvation is up to God. It's God's decision. And it isn't dependent on our beliefs. So when we're talking about heresy, we shouldn't ostracize or exile or especially kill anyone who holds to heresies or proclaims heresies. We also shouldn't try to isolate people who who believe heresies from society. All of our beliefs about God fall short of God's reality. And all of our words that we use to communicate our beliefs about God fall short of the truth of what God is. Our words will always fail us. So, to some extent, we all have imperfect beliefs about God. So, when we're talking about heresy, it's not just imperfect beliefs about God. It's beliefs that run contrary to church teaching the accepted, passed-down traditions of the church that have been handed to us. And let's hold that in our minds. That heresy, it goes against the accepted teaching of the church that has been passed down. And if somebody believes a heresy, we need to remember we're not talking about salvation. Salvation is in God's hands. We can still correct that belief. We can say that we disagree with the heretical belief. 
We can say that we think heresy is unhelpful, and we can argue it and debate it, but we should not be using power to try to silence people. I want to say that because as we go through these heresies, and as we talk about these heresies, you may come across some of these heresies that you're like, wait, I thought that was what the Trinity was. Many of us have embraced these heresies more than we ever would like to acknowledge or even realize. So, have some grace for other people. And there are going to be certain groups, certain sects of Christianity that I'm going to talk about that believe heretical beliefs. It doesn't mean that I think we should shun or isolate those people. But it does mean we say that that is not the accepted teaching of the church, and we point out the problems of why that heretical belief doesn't make sense. Now, one thing that is also important here is to recognize that good doctrine, and when I say doctrine, I'm talking about the teaching of the church, what makes it good is that it helps us make sense of the testimony of Scripture. This Trinitarian doctrine that has been passed down to us, it's good because it makes sense of Scripture. It holds Scripture up and the witness of Scripture and gives clarification to the witness of Scripture, but it also holds everything in balance. And heresies are problems because when you embrace a heresy, it forces a part of Scripture to not make sense any longer. Good doctrine helps us balance the testimony of Scripture, and heresy throws that balance out of whack. So, that's the problem with a heresy, is that it starts to make Scripture not make sense, and the Bible is the foundation for Christian faith. So, if the witness of Scripture stops making sense, and it's no longer coherent, well, we have a real problem there. And as we go through the heresies that I'm going to take us through related to the Trinity, I'll be pointing out just how that, diff- that heresy makes one part of Scripture not make sense. The other thing to recognize here is that Trinitarian heresies, they developed most often because people are trying to over-explain the testimony of Scripture. Oftentimes, we think of a heretic as somebody who is bad or somebody who's just causing trouble, somebody who is just trying to mess up um, our, our teachings in our churches. But that's not the aim of a heretic. Most heretics throughout church history, most people who have embraced a heresy, they did it from a place of trying to explain Scripture. Now, I know that's not always true. There are certain cult movements that are really just about power and manipulation and control. Power, manipulation, and control, that's actually different than heresy. And there are orthodox churches, churches that don't embrace heresy, that also manipulate and use power and control. So we're focusing just on heresy here. And most of the heretics that we're going to be talking about, these these heresies that they believed, they came from a place of wanting to explain Scripture, of wanting to try to make sense of the Bible. But the problem is, is that they tried to over-explain, and they overemphasized one aspect of the testimony of Scripture, which threw everything else out of whack. So that's really how heresies develop. Somebody's trying to read Scripture. Somebody's trying to make sense of it. And they lose the balance that Scripture presents us. What Scripture asks us to do, especially when it comes to the Trinity, 
is to hold certain things in tension. And what Orthodox teaching around the Trinity has done is it has held different beliefs about God in tension and not tried to over-explain those. There's a quote from a theologian named Jürgen Moltmann that is helpful for me when talking about heresies with the Trinity. Moltmann writes, We have to remain concrete, for history shows us that it is in the abstractions that the heresies are hidden. We have to remain concrete. What Moltmann is talking about there is we have to look at the actual evidence and presentation of God in Scripture and look at what the actual evidence in Scripture tells us and not try to over-explain that. Not try to pull out a bunch of abstractions from the evidence in Scripture. When you look at some of these heresies, one of the problems that they all do is that they, they try to use analogies. They try to use different examples in this world to help explain the Trinity. But that's always going to give us an inaccurate picture of the Trinity. Because the reality of God, it can't be expressed perfectly in a fallen, broken world. So, Moltmann encourages us, remain concrete. These heresies, they didn't do what Moltmann is saying. And because of that, they throw the witness of Scripture out of balance. So let's actually dive into the heresies now, now that we know what we're talking about, and now that we know what the problem with heresies is and, and how they develop, let's look at some of the more popular ones. And each with each of these, I'm going to go through five different heresies that are the most popular. This is not exhaustive. Um, there are more heresies than this. But I just chose the five that I think have been the most prominent and the five that are also still with us today that we see in the way people talk about the Bible. The first of these is what's called modalism. Modalism is a Trinitarian heresy. It can also be called monarchianism or Sabellianism. Um, but what modalism states is that there is one God and really only one God. And the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are different masks God wears, or different modes that God is presented in. So what modalism does is it, it, it emphasizes the oneness of God at the expense of the threeness of God. And when I talk about heresies putting things out of balance, modalism puts the scales too heavy on the oneness of God, so that the distinctions between the persons of the Trinity no longer exist. So, one person who at least flirts with modalism, um, at, at the very least flirts with, with it with the analogies that he uses, is the famous theologian Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards was a very prominent theologian and pastor um, in U.S. history. He did the Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God sermon. And in his book on the Trinity, he uses this analogy of the sun. And... In his analogy, he's actually bordering, if not outright embracing without realizing it, the, the heresy of modalism. And here's why. Edwards says that the actual sun, the being of the sun, the, the physical part of the sun, the substance of the sun, that that is the Father. The light of, that the sun gives us is Jesus, 
and the heat that the sun gives off is the Holy Spirit. The problem with this analogy is that the only thing that actually truly exists in that analogy is the physical being of the sun. The, the physical material of the sun is the only thing that actually exists. The light and the heat are just effects of the sun. So what that does is it completely dissolves the different persons of the Trinity, and it makes the Son and the Spirit more subservient to God the Father. That is modalism. Another example of an analogy that gets used commonly today to express the Trinity, that, that is the heresy of modalism, is when somebody says that, for instance, for, for me, I'm Pastor John. When I'm at Stonebridge, I am Pastor John. But when I'm at home with my wife, Emily, I'm just John. And then when I'm with my son, JD, I'm just dad. And people say that that's the same as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that it's really just God, the same God, the same person, interacting in different ways with different relationships. That's modalism. Because as you can see, in that analogy, there's only one person, one being, which is me. And in those different contexts, I wear different masks, different modes. That's where modalism comes from, is different modes. So modalism, it is still really common. This is the way people will talk about the Trinity. And we have to remember that when we emphasize the oneness of God at the expense of the threeness of God, that is heresy. That is not what Nicaea teaches us. That is not what the orthodox position of the church is. In the orthodox position of the church, we have one God, but three distinct persons that don't overlap, that don't interchange with each other. They are distinct from one another. So that's our first heresy. And I wanted to lead with that one because it shows us that somebody like Jonathan Edwards, who was a great theologian and a great thinker and somebody that is orthodox in almost every way, even he could be tempted by modalism when talking about the Trinity. Even he could find himself flirting with this heresy as he's trying to explain the Trinity. And what that does for us is it lifts up the difficulty of analogies when we're using the Trinity. One thing we should probably just do in general is not try to use an analogy or an object lesson to explain the Trinity. The more you do that, the easier it will be for you to embrace heresy. The next heresy I want to discuss here is tritheism. This is pretty obvious one. Tritheism, that means three gods. In contrast to modalism, which emphasizes the oneness of God at the expense of the threeness of God, tritheism emphasizes the threeness of God at the expense of the oneness of God. And it's pretty simple. It just says that Father, Son, Holy Spirit are three separate distinct gods, that they aren't one substance, which is what Nicaea tells us. Nicaea tells us that though they have distinct personalities, the three are still of one substance. And though they have distinctions between them, the three are still of one substance. So they are one God expressed in three different persons. Tritheism says there's three distinct gods. Now, 
what this does, the, the problem with this, where this makes scripture not make sense, is that every instance of declaring God is one in the Bible becomes untrue. So there's a Hebrew prayer, the Shema. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, is part of the Shema. That foundational prayer, it becomes untrue. If we start saying that there are three gods, God is no longer one then. So tritheism, it, it throws the witness of scripture out of whack, and it makes so many pieces of the Bible not make sense anymore. And it makes a lot of Jesus' dialogue with, with the Father not make sense. When Jesus says, I and the Father are one, it doesn't make sense. Now, this is also one uh, heresy that is with us today. The idea of tritheism, of three different gods, that is the official stated position of the Mormon church. And I'm not saying that to, to, to pile on Mormons or to, to pick on Mormons or anything like that. That just is the stated position of the Mormon church, and that is one of the key differences between Orthodox Christianity and Mormonism. And I think it's important whenever we're talking about other faiths and other beliefs and people that we disagree with to make sure we quote them on their terms. So I'm going to be quoting here a book from a man named Robert Millet, um, LDS Beliefs. It's a doctrinal reference for um, the Latter-day Saints Church. And in this book, On the Trinity, page 642, they write this, quoting Joseph Smith, I have always declared God to be a distinct personage, Jesus Christ a separate and distinct personage from God the Father, and the Holy Ghost a distinct personage and a spirit. And these three constitute three distinct personages and three gods. That was Joseph Smith's assertion. And the different personages is one thing, but when you get to that line of three gods, that's where you are now outside the bounds of Nicene Trinitarian Orthodoxy. And that is one of the key differences between uh, the Mormon church and the Orthodox Christian faith, is this belief that there are three different gods. That is a Trinitarian heresy. That is not accepted Orthodox teaching of the Christian church. And like I said, the problem with it is that it makes all those instances of declaring that God is one no longer make sense. When you say Father, Son, and Spirit are three distinct gods, then the God that has interacted with the world is no longer one. And that's a problem. The next heresy is the one that kicked off the Council of Nicaea. It's called Arianism. And this is one that emphasizes the the oneness of God again. It's similar to modalism, but it is distinct from modalism. It emphasizes the, emphasizes the oneness of God at the expense of the threeness. So what Arianism stated was that Jesus was created, that Jesus was not part of the creator God, but Jesus was created. Now, Arianism said that Jesus was created before time began, so Jesus had a special place amongst all of those who were created. But Jesus was still a step below 
God the Father, the Creator God, and Jesus was not of one substance with God the Father. That was Arianism, and that's what Nicaea was talking about and arguing against. One of the quotes from Arius, who was the bishop who started this all off, he wrote this in a letter. Very few of his teachings survive, actually, so it's hard to know exactly what he's saying, but in one of his letters, he said that Jesus, that, that there was a time where Jesus was not. That there was a time in which Jesus did not exist. And then he goes on to say, for he was not unbegotten. Nobody ever told Arius, don't use double negatives, apparently. But Arius said, for he was not unbegotten, meaning Jesus was created at one point. Then Arius says, we are persecuted because we say that the Son has a beginning, but that God is without beginning. So you can see the, the distinction he's drawing there. Now, Arius is trying to emphasize the oneness of God the Father and trying to make sure that he holds that oneness intact, but he collapses the threeness. Remember, Nicaea helps us live in that tension, one and three, holding them in balance. Arius pushes us towards the oneness. So we lose the threeness. Now, what's the problem with this one? Why does it not make sense? Well, it puts Jesus on the created side, not the creator side. So Jesus' statements in John identifying himself as God no longer make any sense. It's hard to make sense of the Gospel of John if you hold to Arius' beliefs. The Gospel of John, it, it ties Jesus to God directly. And Matthew, Mark, and Luke do more subtly, but John is just much more clear. So if we embrace Arius, all of a sudden the Gospel of John just doesn't make sense anymore. Jesus now is on the created side, no longer truly divine, and that's a problem. Next one, our fourth one, is called adoptionism. In adoptionism, Jesus is a man who lives a sinless life, and because of this, God adopts Jesus as God's son. That's adoptionism. God adopts Jesus as God's son because Jesus was a man who lived a sinless life. There's so many problems with adoptionism, but you can see this when people say things like Jesus was a great teacher, that, that Jesus was distinct from God, but Jesus was just a great teacher that God lifted up and God elevated. That's essentially adoptionism. What this one does is similar to Arianism. It emphasizes the oneness of God at the expense of the threeness of God. And it also makes a lot of other Christian teachings uh, difficult to understand. For instance, the fact that somebody can live a sinless life, it makes a lot of what Paul says about sin and sin being passed down to us. And in Romans chapter 5 and Romans chapter 3, it, it makes those chapters not make sense anymore. And the idea that God would just choose somebody because they were sinless, like, that just isn't the message of the Bible. So in order to adopt, <laughs> no pun intended, in order to embrace adoptionism, you really have to let go of large portions of the testimony of Scripture. And the whole idea that Jesus was just a, an exemplary man just doesn't fit what Scripture says. The last one I'm going to address 
here this week is docetism. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it comes from the Greek word meaning to, to think or, or to assume. Um, and yeah, what it really focuses on is the belief that Christ's body was not real, but was a, was a phantasm or was a ghost, that Jesus just appeared to be human. That was another one of the Trinitarian controversies. And what this heresy does is it gets rid of any sort of real substantive distinction between God and Jesus because Jesus doesn't have a separate body. Jesus is just this projection, just this ghost, just this phantom that shows up. In reality, though, what Nicaea teaches us is that Jesus is fully God, fully human, and that Jesus had an actual body and that in the person of Jesus, God became human. The problem with docetism, again, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it correctly, so if you know how to pronounce it, send me an email. But the problem with it is that it's just weird, first off. It's this weird idea that Jesus is just a ghost. I mean, this almost makes God a trickster. It makes Jesus a trickster because he definitely presents himself numerous times as an actual human being. So that's, it's just weird, first off. But then it also doesn't make any sense of Thomas touching Jesus's side. At that point, if Thomas can touch Jesus's side, how is he a ghost? More than that, though, what this heresy does is it makes the bodily resurrection of Jesus completely fall apart. Because Jesus never really had a body. Jesus was just a ghost, just a phantom, just appeared to be there. So how can there be a bodily resurrection? In fact, the redemption of humanity, the essential Christian teaching, it falls apart. So this one, the, the problems are very, very obvious. And docetism, it's very important to what's called Gnosticism. You might have heard that there are modern-day Gnostics today. A lot of what they proclaimed was that Jesus was never really human, that Jesus never really had a body and was just a ghost. At least certain sects of Gnosticism claim that. These five heresies, modalism, tritheism, Arianism, adoptionism, docetism, these are heresies that we still see with us today. We at least see glimpses of them today. But each one of these heresies, it pushes too far in one direction. Either they emphasize the oneness of God at the expense of the distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or they emphasize the threeness of God. Or they emphasize the divinity of Jesus or the humanity of Jesus. They all emphasize one piece of the scripture of testimony, but it's at the expense of other witnesses of scripture. You see, the witness of scripture, it gives us a complicated picture of God's reality. It gives us a picture of God's reality that is difficult to translate into our world and into our fallen reality. And the test of Christian faith and of Christian teaching is hold the testimony of the scriptures in balance. That's the trick of Trinitarian theology. It's to not over-explain, but instead to hold the various tensions in balance. And that is what the Nicene Creed does. That's why the Nicene Creed is so important. Because 
for 1,700 or so years now. It has helped us talk about the witness of God in Scripture in a way that holds these tensions in balance. So next week, we will be looking at the Nicene Creed closely, and we'll be diving into the words of that creed, showing how it holds the tension in place and how it gives us language to talk about the witness of God in a way that helps Scripture to continue to make sense to us today. So, thank you for joining us, and I look forward to continuing our discussion next week. God bless you all, and see you next week.